I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a task force recommends changes to the foster care system in a Gulf Coast county. Then the final installment in our three-part investigative feature on opioid abuse in the state. Later, a conversation with the state's new poet laureate. I just always delighted in the mysteries of the world as experienced through the senses. And I remember as a child always thinking that words had magic to them. And coming of age and coming apart in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. task force that examined the foster care system in Hancock County is recommending a number of changes to the process. The advisory group was formed last year to address the large number of children in state custody in the coastal county. Task force chairman and state representative David Barria tells MPB's Evelina Burnett one of their major recommendations is making the current part-time youth court referee a full-time county court judge. Back in 2014, we recognized that we had a real problem with respect to the number of children that had been removed from their homes and were in the custody of the Department of Human Services in Hancock County. In fact, the numbers revealed that Hancock County had the largest number of children that had been removed uh, per capita in the entire state of Mississippi, and we're a relatively small county in terms of population. So Um, Judge Sandy Steckler, who was our senior chancery judge, convened a meeting, an all-day-long meeting, and he brought in uh, someone from out of state who uh, helped run the meeting. And we, the purpose of the meeting was to discuss what uh, ideas people had about why we were in the state we were in and how we might be able to improve the situation here in Hancock County. Uh, At the end of that day, uh, Judge Steckler appointed a task force to really dig into um, these issues, and he asked that I chair the task force. And he appointed about 16 or 18 other members of the task force from all different walks of life and from all different uh, disciplines, if you will, but uh, all of whom had an interest in either DHS or the youth court or uh, helping families reunite or get the proper 
treatment that they need so that they can reunite with their children. What was sort of the ultimate goal of the task force? Well, the task force really had uh, two questions that we uh, were presented, and one was, why do we have such an inordinate number of children in custody in Hancock County? And number two, what can be done to reduce that number and to reunite families? So we really focused on those two issues. But to try to get to those issues, we had to get some data. So we spent a long time collecting data from various sources. And as you know, uh, the, the peer committee was also asked to review Hancock County's DHS situation at the same time. So the peer investigation and our investigation moved parallel for a while. Uh, They finished their investigation early and rendered their report, and it took a while longer for us to um, complete our investigation and complete our report. So uh, the report is done now, and what what did you find as the answers to to those two questions that, that you were asking? Well, the first of all, the report is a 36 or 38-page report that is posted on the website that we created, HancockTaskForce.org. I invite anybody who uh, is interested to go and read the report. You know, it's not an easy answer to either of those questions. We agreed mostly with the peer report and its findings, but we disagreed in a couple of areas. For instance, the peer report did not think that we had external factors that were causing the problem in Hancock County, whereas the task force found that we do. Uh, For instance, an external factor would be uh, the impact of Katrina on households in Hancock County or the impact of BP or the impact of the, uh, the, the downturn in the economy. Those kinds of things the task force felt we're having an impact in Hancock County, and uh, we feel like that drug abuse is rampant in Hancock County. All of those factors contribute to why Hancock County stands out as unique in terms of the ratio of children that are in custody. MPB's Evelina Burnett with State Representative David Beria on Hancock County's foster care system. Up next, the final installment in our three-part investigative feature on opioid abuse in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're print impaired, MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301. So many Northerners are moving to Cary, North Carolina. The city has gotten a nickname, Containment Area for Relocated Yankees. And that's changing the state's politics. I've heard somebody joke that, you know, Republicans from New England come down there and realize that they're actually a Democrat in North Carolina. And it's not just North Carolina. The politics of the New South later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on NPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians who find themselves facing charges for crimes related to opioid drug addiction may find drug court offers treatment and accountability instead of just jail time. In the final part of our three-part series, Opioids in Mississippi, the Silent Epidemic, MPB's Desiree Frazier looks at one program that's rebuilding lives. It's a Thursday morning at the Warren County Drug Court in Vicksburg. 17 people are waiting to go before the judge. You have a 180-day drug and alcohol-free certificate. 
Circuit Court Judge Isidore Patrick is giving out certificates to participants who have been drug-free from 30 days up to two and a half years. That means something. That's an achievement that they should feel proud of, and I tell them that. If it's not for 30 days, that's 30 days you weren't using drugs. Judge Patrick says drug court differs from county to county. This voluntary program targets those who have a severe drug problem, commit a felony crime, but are nonviolent. Drug dealers cannot participate. Kathy, which isn't her real name, was a nurse for 10 years. She became addicted to Norco, a combination of hydrocodone and Tylenol she took after sinus surgery. The 33-year-old found the pills also helped her cope with a new baby and separating from her husband. It totally numbed any emotion I had, good or bad. I mean, I was just kind of there. You know, I had no emotion. I walked through life like a zombie. It was horrible. Kathy says she doctor shopped at work until they figured out she was addicted to Norco and told her to go to rehab. fact of the matter was I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. At the time, I thought it was the worst thing in the world that could have happened to me. Looking back a year down the road, I see now it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Facing a charge of prescription acquired by fraud, Kathy chose drug court over jail. She spent 90 days in treatment and follows the rules. If she continues to do so, the charge will be expunged from her record. Miriam Husband is the Warren County Drug Court Coordinator. She says there are currently 94 people in the program. Participants seek help themselves or are referred by the courts. It's a minimum of two years and a maximum of five years. Often people are using more than one drug. They usually go into an inpatient treatment 30 to 90 days. Uh, once they complete treatment, they come back into our court system and they start seeing the judge regularly, taking regular drug tests. In the Warren County program, drug tests are required at least three times a week and there are penalties for a positive result or a hot test. Participants must attend recovery meetings five days per week. Clients who relapse have to pay for treatment. 30-year-old Virginia has relapsed several times, struggling with an addiction to Dilaudid, an opioid pain pill. Whenever my mom and dad pressed charges on me for the uttering forgery charge to plead into drug court was a wake-up call. But still, again, it wasn't a wake-up call until this past time in August whenever I called another charge. That charge was burglary in August of last year. Virginia has since graduated from the Warren County Drug Court. She says the structure of the program helped her stay clean. Well, having the accountability of my drug court officers and knowing that I have random drug tests and knowing that my son is waiting on me whenever I get home is you know, good enough. Two young men are here in the Warren County Drug Court wearing orange jumpsuits because they didn't show up for drug tests. Judge Patrick sends the pair to jail for 48 hours. If they fail to comply with the rules, they could be kicked out of the program. The judge asked the mother of one of the young men to be in court this morning to stress the consequences her son may face. I did that for a purpose. We have to have a good support system in the program. By that, I mean the the parents, the sister, mother, sister, brother, they have to know where you are, what kind of program you're in, and they can support you in that. Judge Patrick and court coordinator Miriam Husband meet weekly with advocates, including representatives from law enforcement, the district attorney's office, treatment facilities, and a doctor who provides free examinations. They discuss how each client is progressing, address violations, and review requests for potential participants. Judge Patrick says their input is invaluable in keeping clients on track. What we're trying to do is return them to the community so they can be viable citizens, 
taxpayers earning a living and back to the families. And that's and for the most part, it has worked. Two-thirds of the clients in the Warren County Drug Court complete the program. Kathy, the former nurse, is looking forward to graduating from the program next year in a ceremony with family and friends watching. I know a lot of people think drug court is a horrible thing. And yes, there are a lot of requirements, but we got ourselves here. And I would tell anybody to look at it as a second chance because you could be sitting in prison. It can help you stay cyber if you want it to. And that's the challenge for people like Kathy, making the commitment to stay clean and using the tools learned in treatment to face the hurdles in life. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. If you'd like more information about opioid treatment, call the Mississippi Department of Mental Health at 1-877-210-8513. To hear all three reports in this series, Opioids in Mississippi, The Silent Epidemic, go to mpbonline.org slash news. Up next, a conversation with the state's new poet laureate. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The conventions are over. Candidates have been nominated with less than three months to Election Day. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then, but we will be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. The Decker Mountain Radio Hour is on the road to Tupelo, Mississippi, Saturday, August 13th at 7.30 p.m. at the Link Concert Center. We'll have author Richard Grant, bluesman Sam Mosley, and rock and roll from the Kit Thorne Band. This show is free and open to the public. The Thacker Mountain Radio Hour in Tupelo at the Link Center, Saturday, August 13th at 7.30 p.m. More information at ThackerMountain.com. Here comes Jim This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians... One of Mississippi's adopted daughters is now the state's new poet laureate, Beth Ann Fennelly. A native of New Jersey and a professor at the University of Mississippi was named the state's fifth poet laureate yesterday. She succeeds poet and Mississippi native Natasha Trethaway. The state's poet laureate is tasked with promoting Mississippi's culture. Before the announcement ceremony, Fennelly stopped by for a visit. She tells us her love of poetry started at a very young age. I realized it in college when I took my first creative writing class. But recently I was doing a Q&A event and someone in the audience asked me when I knew I wanted to be a poet. And I started talking about this great teacher I had in college and my mom was in the audience and she raised her hand and she said, that's not true, Beth Ann. <laughs> that she had a piece of art I had done when I was seven years old where I said in this drawing that I wanted to be a P-O-I-T poet when I grew up. So she, she's got evidence that dates predates my college so days. So somehow you were inspired as a youth or you were born a poet. I just always delighted in um, the mysteries of the world as experienced through the senses. And I remember as a child always thinking that words had magic to them, even to the point where I remember as a girl someone told me you could write your name in cement when it was wet. And I saw that other children had written their name in wet cement. So when it rained, I would go outside and try to write my name in cement. You know, I I just always thought there was something incantatory and magical about words that they could have spells. You know, another time I remember I had a clown doll who I thought wanted to kill me. I was <laughs> Didn't con- we all? Yeah, right. I was convinced <laughs> this clown doll wanted to kill me. And I wanted to ask my 
my parents to remove it, but I knew if the clown doll knew I would ask for it to be taken away, then it would definitely kill me that night. So instead, I wrote poetry for the clown doll, and I put it under the clown doll's base about how much I love the clown doll and nothing bad would ever happen to it. This poetry as insurance, but um, as silly as that is, even now I recognize I had some type of faith in words, the right words, and the right arrangement as carrying power. And um, while that's a silly example, it's oh, the no. same faith I have now. <laughs> I wish I had known about the poetry for my clown doll. <laughs> oh, I could have saved you, Karen. <laughs> you could we could have. have done it together. And I'm sure there are listeners who are thinking the same thing. <laughs> Do you focus on one subject more than another with your poetry? I don't. I'm really greedy. I write about a lot of different things. I do like to write about my life, my life as a wife and a mother and a teacher and an artist. Um, I also like to write about things that I've, I've read about or experienced or seen, you know, bizarre conversation I have on an airplane or something I read about a native Mississippi weed or uh, an animal that I think is... A weed? You have a poem about a weed? I've got a long poem about kudzu, unless you don't consider kudzu a weed. I think most of us do. I think we do, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever finish a poem and say, I didn't get everything in there that I wanted? So you try to go back to include it, or do you write another poem? When a poem is done, Mm -hmm. is it done, or can it be revised? Yeah, a poem is never done. It's just abandoned, first of all. (laughs) Um, Do I ever write a poem in which I think I didn't get everything in? The answer is yes. That's how I can tell the poem is working. If I ever set out to write a poem, and I know what I want to say, and I finish, and I have said what I wanted to say, the poem is dead on arrival. It is a failure, because I was not open to the, the magic, the serendipity, that happens when you let the poem take you where it needs to go. Tell us what it means to be a poet laureate. I don't mean the feeling. I mean, what is a poet laureate for Mississippi? Mm -hmm. Is it a job? Is it just an honor? What happens now? I think it's a job and an honor. For example, it doesn't come with a salary. So it's not something that I can, you know, quit my my job at the university and just uh, spend every day going around the state, although, frankly, I'd love to do that. But it is a job in that it galvanizes my long-held mission of getting poetry into the hands of more Mississippians, and in particular for me, the youth of Mississippi, because I feel that's where the split takes place, that when we're children, we're allowed to take pleasure in words and make up random nonsense games and clap and rhyme and understand it as play. And sometime in our schooling, we bifurcate and have the sense that music and oral culture of storytelling or hip-hop music, that can be playful and fun, but the written poetry is dreadful and scholarly, and it will suck the life out of you. And so I just want to go back and try to find people before they've cemented that divide and show them how much playfulness and pleasure is in the written word and how sustaining that can be really for your whole life. Beth Ann Fennelly, just named Poet Laureate for Mississippi. Congratulations, and thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. Up next, coming of age and coming apart in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Well, the conventions are over. Candidates have been nominated. With less than three months to Election Day, we don't know what's going to happen between now and then. But whatever it is, we'll be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils. From potty training to allergies to braces and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Brooklyn in the 1970s was a magical place for young August and her friends growing up. It was also a dangerous place of criminals and madness. In her new novel, Another Brooklyn, writer Jacqueline Woodson looks back at the coming of age of the tight-knit group of friends. She also paints a picture of memory and conflict. In today's book club, Woodson tells us that writing for children and young adults is what moves her most. I just feel like that's where I found my voice, and I think that's such an interesting place to write from because those are the years that have such an impact on us as adults, and I've never forgotten them. I think a lot of times adolescence is such a painful time that we try to block it out as quickly as we can, (laughs) but I, I didn't do that, and so I have access to a lot of the memories of what it was to be, say, 10 to 16, and as a result, can feel comfortable writing from that space. You have won so many awards with your writing. Back in 2001 with Miracles Boys, you won the Coretta Scott King Award. You've been named Young People's Poet Laureate from the Poetry Foundation. You are a National Book Award winner from a few years ago. Do you ever feel intimidated by your own success? It's an interesting question. I don't feel intimidated The awards I've won, for the most part, are for the books that I've already written. And those awards have nothing to do with what I'm doing now or what I'm going to be doing in the future. Even with the Lifetime Achievement Awards, it's great to have someone say you've kind of changed the face of literature in your lifetime, and so we want to honor you. And and, and for me, I'm like, well, my life is not quite over yet, so (laughs) I hope this is not some kind of hint. I don't feel like I write because I need to keep up with that expectation of writing award-winning books. I write because I love writing, and because I love writing so much, I think all the rest has come. I feel like I'm doing what I love to do. I'm doing what I was brought here to do. And I'm glad that people like what I'm doing and understand what I'm doing. 20 years to get to your next adult-themed book. Tell us about Another Brooklyn. Uh, Another Brooklyn is a novel that's the story of August, who's a woman looking back on her adolescence and kind of looking back on the mistakes she's made and also what inspired her to move forward. But more than that, it's kind of a love song to a time that has passed and a place that has passed. I grew up in a neighborhood called Bushwick in Brooklyn, and the Bushwick of the 70s and 80s is not there anymore. And I I wanted to put it back on the page in a way that it was then so that people know that it existed. It was a neighborhood that was predominantly black and Latino. Um, it was on a neighborhood on the edge of white flight, and so white folks were moving out to places like Long Island and upstate and Queens, and black and Latino people were moving in via the Great Migration or immigration. They were strivers, and they were trying to make better lives for their families, and now it's a very hipster neighborhood. 
lots of young white people who have a lot of money who want to live in a cool neighborhood. And so, so it's changed. It's changed in a lot of ways. Picking up your book and leafing through it, the words are on the page in a different way than you find in a regular novel. Talk about that word placement, sentence, paragraph placement. It's important for me, for people, for books to be both engaging in terms of the story and engaging in terms of the language. So I'm a poet and I'm a fiction writer, and when I sit down to write a novel, all of that comes into place. And I'm very concerned with language. I I like books where I can read a sentence and sit with that sentence and go, wow, how did the author just do that? That's the way I write. Everything I write, I read out loud. It has to sound a certain way. It has to look a certain way on the page. I pay a lot of attention to white space because white space is, for me, that those moments when the narrative becomes more contemplative and the reader is asked to pause and just digest what they've just been given. It, does it also serve as transition? Sometimes. But not always. Mainly it's to stop and go, hmm. And maybe reread that before you move mm-hmm. on. Exactly. The book is Another Brooklyn. The author is Jacqueline Woodson. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Jacqueline Woodson will be at Square Books in Oxford on August 19th and will be at the Mississippi Book Festival on August 20th. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, Creature Comforts at 10, MPB Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. And be sure to join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. It's Marketplace Tech for Thursday the 11th. I'm Ben Johnson in New York. When U.S.